Okay, so it gives me great pleasure to welcome Professor Anthony Steed to Building New Realities. Uh, out of all the people we've had on the, the podcast, uh, Professor Steed is eminently qualified to talk about Building New Realities. And just as an interesting side note, uh, the last time I met Anthony was when he was doing due diligence on Future Visual for our tech, Vision XR. So uh, well, I'm happy to say that uh, Future Visual passed your due diligence and has had, had a really great relationship with John Bates uh, as our chairman and um, we've doubled in size since that. So welcome, uh, Professor Steed. Thank you very much. I'm always happy to talk about my favourite topic. Excellent. Well, as I say, you, you know, you are eminently qualified. And I remember actually when we did due diligence, I was like, oh, I'd love to pick that man's brains and find out a little bit more about his views on, on immersive. So, so here we go. Uh, as a bit of background, you are... Um, Currently, professor at uh, UCL uh, in virtual environments. Is that yep. right? Yeah, in virtual That's environments right, yep. and computer graphics. Of course, you go around the world doing um, uh, uh, residencies or fellowships at, at other academic um, facilities, and your research area is is specified as around real term, real time interactive virtual environments with particular interest in VR, AR, and what I'm most excited to hear about, novel forms of interaction. Um, so yeah, the, the, the podcast is called Building New Realities. Um, how long have you be, been uh, working in this field? How long have you been interested in uh, immersive tech? And what was your sort of background from degree level? Did you go straight from degree into immersive tech? And I'd yeah, love to find out a right, bit more. Right, okay. So, um... So I, I, I've been in the field for quite a long time um, in that uh, I'm almost up for 30 years. Uh, so I got interested in virtual reality when it was sort of more of a science fiction uh, thing. So the type of thing you saw on Tomorrow's World, which for those of you who aren't in the UK is a uh, now no longer running TV show, but it was science program in the BBC in the UK, very popular in the 80s and 90s. Where, and on that, we, we started to see sort of virtual reality systems coming out of the aerospace industry in the 1980s. So um, well, my first uh, try of immersive virtual reality is when I was interviewed for a PhD. Um, so I was a mathematician um, by first training, um, but I... I and I, and I like maths, I, I do like maths, but I wanted to do something a bit more practical. Uh, and I did a module on computer graphics and I thought, oh yes, that's the, that's the thing I want to do. I like that, it's quite practical, but you get to do all the maths. Um, and then I ended up uh, choosing between a few different offers for, for PhD places. I ended up at uh, Professor Mel Slater's group at Queen Mary, who had a division ProVision 100 system. So this was a fully immersive turnkey virtual reality system. You bought it off the shelf. Obviously, we're talking six figures uh, probably for the for the system. Uh, but it came with a head-mounted display, came with head trackers, hand trackers, and uh, an image generator. Uh, of course, that was quite expensive at the time. Uh, but it was fully immersive. Uh, you could put on the headset, you could look around, you could see your hands, see your body. And um, we quickly learned that the problems weren't anything to do with maths. Uh, there were interesting technical problems to make this work, but the more interesting thing was how people reacted to this, this system, how they behaved, uh, what they we what we could intuit that they were thinking about the environment, um, and um, henceforth I've just been interested in that uh, sort of effect really, which is 
what is it about immersive systems that makes them qualitatively different than interacting with other types of user interface? And of course, when we got that was 1992, by the way, um, when the when the provision uh, when we when I interviewed and thought, yeah, that, that's fantastic. That's what I want to do. Um, and uh, henceforth, I've been working on immersive systems. So, so did you draw sort of um, interest or specialism quickly sort of almost branch into the psychology of people's reaction to immersive environments as opposed to sort of the hardcore maths and solving vision and graphics problems or was it a sort of you know equal split I presumably from what you just said you were going into it thinking this is going to be a technical challenge there's some hard maths to do here sure. but quite quickly it obviously became a big psychological uh, and pedagogic perhaps um, absolutely so um, we we were in a computer science department first off so so that's um, Professor Slater and I Mel and I um, uh, were interested in computer graphics he'd written a computer graphics textbook um, and um, we were employed on a I, I was working on a project which was about one of the one of uh, about lighting as far as I, I recall so they would they were sponsored by a lighting company who wanted to use virtual reality to visualize lighting solutions hmm. um, because there is a market uh, the market for home home light bulbs is uninteresting um, but there is a market for um, installing light fittings in large conference centres, where and where you want to get it right, you want it to look good, but mm. also you want it to be maintainable. So, so the the, the thought was that um, you could visualise uh, the lighting solution, and then you could sell these lighting solutions, and that that sort of traditional virtual that's what people thought virtual reality would be good for at the time, mm. because there had been these famous case studies of. Uh, building, you know, building visualization in virtual reality that help people solve some key problems and avoid engineering mistakes, and that for a long time that was what sustained the industry was was um, engineering practices that needed robust, you know, needed to make certain engineers, uh, certain designers more effective at their jobs by giving them easy ways to see things or visualize things. But what we found uh, in a in a series of experiments was that people were, re were reacting to the, to the scenario as if it was real. And, and we didn't have the terminology at the time. There was this concept of telepresence and presence, which has sort of been bandied around and a few articles from 1991, 92, and, and it'd been mentioned earlier in the, in the, in the sort of telerobotics community, that, that what we should, people were behaving as if they were there. Um, but nobody really had any science to get into that. Um, so what things would you change? We, uh, like many people, we thought the graphics had to be better. Um, but that was very hard at the time because uh, the graphics was already um, as good as it could be. And we were just looking at an orders of magnitude of improvement in graphics processors. But very early on, we realized there's something to do with the body and yourself is in there. And again, we didn't have the language uh, and the, the understanding of neuroscience for 15 years afterwards. Mm. Um, that something about seeing yourself in the environment was, um, was very important. And we were probably the first group that did a virtual pit. So you stand on the edge of a virtual cliff and look down mm. and... Um, the reaction to that is very uh, visceral. So it is in your gut. People 
that are afraid of, of heights sort of do actually respond to it as if it's a real height in that, you know, back in those days, we counted swear words. Um, we counted people taking off the headman's display and telling us we were nasty people um, and things like that. So people sort of crouching down, preparing to step back and so on. Now, much later on, people sort of brought in the sort of uh, how the, the knowledge that came out of neuroscience about how this, what, what was happening, you know, so people don't understand reality was, virtual reality is not reality, right? The brain is um, a complex uh, machine which understands sensory perceptions and then makes decisions. And some of those are, need to be made very short, in very short term and therefore happen at quite a low level, such as preparing to react to threats. Um, so of course you can, um, like you can in a, in, a, in a sort of, if you go to a ghost house or something like that, you can prepare yourself to not be shocked. Yeah, tense um, up, kind of um, regulate but, your breathing. Uh, but, it, but it's a process, right? And if you, yeah. just, if you just threaten somebody, they will react. And there's a whole YouTube genre, uh, which I don't say is very ethical, but of people sort of shocking, even in virtual reality, but giving people, like shocking them with something that, that there is there's a, an immediate response to. Um, which is difficult for people to avoid, right? Um, because it is a, you know, it's an immediate response where the brain doesn't have time to think through. Mm -hmm. um, and that, that then led to, uh, obviously, there were many technical problems. So I've sort of spanned between the two. I've, you know, the sort of, between the sort of technical problems um, and the sort of user evaluation side. So, so my group, originally under Mel and then, and then now with me leading it, um, is, is sort of trying to span between making technical changes to the system and, but then proving that, that, you know, sort of having some impact on the user experience, mm -hmm. be it, you know, sort of feeling as if they're more immersed uh, and therefore react as if it's real uh, more, more um, easily, or taking another stance, which is making it more usable, so making it more fun or more adoptable by, 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 um, their users. And what do you call that sort of study of people's reactions and not only people's reactions, but you know, it's people's presence or their belief um, that they are not, not necessarily in another environment because what's so fascinating about VR is you know, you're in a graphics driven environment, but you do have those bodily reactions that you just des to describe. Um, so I was wondering, does that, does that, you know, in the way that pedagogy describes, processes of learning and teaching, what, what would you, how would you describe your actual research? Well, you use the there? term presence, actually, and I think most people would, um, there are so many definitions that it's almost a, it's almost a class of, uh, of definition of something about the, the response being uh, a sort of related to something, analogy in the real world, mm. this response as if real, and B, B sort of being, somewhat un unique in that it would be something you couldn't get in another inter in another style of interface. Mm. Um, so people do focus on that. They call it sort of presence generally um, because there's no such sense as presence, right? So we, people used to use the term sense of presence a lot. But I think we've come to the understanding that that doesn't mean very much in itself in, in that uh, various definitions and Jaron Lanier's recent book has a hundred definitions of what virtual reality is and you could come up with a hundred definitions of presence but we all know it when we see it we mm. all know that somebody's reacting to this when uh, as if somehow if it's real when they see something a very fluid interaction um 
so as a computer scientist, you can take that back to almost, um, there's a lovely definition, which is, uh, I forget who to attribute it to, but perhaps I can look it up um, for the podcast, which is, um, so sexually supported interaction. Right. So somebody looks at somebody looks at the environment. Yeah. Says I should be able to do that. Goes ahead and does it. Yeah. And they don't have to reason about it as the same way that they do in the on a desktop, which is does it do that or does it yeah. do that? Um, because they're using innate skill or innate knowledge. Yeah. And they can look at something, interpret it very quickly, and then yeah. just get, get on with it. And, we're doing it. Yeah, yeah. Because the desktop gives you a, a sense of detachment. Although obviously we're, we're very accustomed to, to using mice to drive around. It does feel detached yeah. as opposed to just getting on with it. Yeah. yeah there's, there's, there's measures of that which are really novel, um, which we're trying to get into, which is you know, a creativity because the environment affords a lot of adoption of skill. So, so that's the type of thing you'd look out for mm. is can people be creative in the environment in interesting ways? So, so because the desktop affords very few sort of new tools for you, mm-hmm. um, but in the virtual environment, you've got a lot of things you could think, try and figure out how to use um, and try, try and appropriate for, your, for yourself. And that's one of the technical challenges going forward is how to support that because there's a lot of, um, reaching out, touching things, and they don't work mm-hmm. uh, in virtual mm-hmm. reality at the moment. Yeah, they don't yeah. do what you expect. It's yeah. a door that doesn't open um, because nobody programmed it. And that's the technical challenge is supporting this sort of feedback loop of building mm-hmm. confidence that I, can, I, can, I know what to do because I can, I, can inter- I can interpret what I see. I mean, in a, in a similar way, there's a, there's a, a guy called uh, Anil Seth. I don't know if you've come across him uh, in, uh, mm-hmm. in Sussex. Uh, who's doing a, a bunch of study on essentially as as humans are our brains putting together what we commonly call reality, but essentially we're making sense of of a bunch of inputs um, that on their own are, aren't aren't reality, but of course our brain puts a filter on them and calls them reality. So it's kind of slightly more out there, almost on the on the f- philosophy, you know, what is reality. Um, type line of study but he does use vr in in in, in some of the studies but they were quite interesting it, there's there's some interesting relationships between the the the, the neuroscientists and almost philo- philosophers and yeah. virtual reality there I mean, it's not an area i specialize in but it's it's interesting to read through the material on how on how we form hypotheses about the real, real world because that, 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 that virtual reality is an excellent test bed for for varying some of those because of course uh um it's under our control so we can mm-hmm. we have done that with scientists like sort of setting up scenarios which aren't realistic uh in the sense that we've controlled something which wouldn't normally be controllable say gravity mm-hmm. and then use that to test a uh, uh, help them test their their understanding of how the the, the human perception systems work uh, and i'll give you a lovely example of that which is a paper where we we know that the the the, the brain models gravity um, in the sense uh, relative to the body, because um, don't have time to get into the science behind that. But we know that if you're lying down, um, you you have a sort of awareness of which way which way is up, um, because that's that's um, um, and, and therefore which directions in particular. I'll have to get a little bit into science you, because you we know this because you you are more sensitive to things which are above you um, as threats. Mm-hmm. Um, because they can fall towards you, whereas something on the floor is not so much a threat because it can't mm-hmm. fall upwards. And uh, it's known that the brain models this because um, 
um, it's it's important possibly for survival um, um, but also uh, and the way to test that was in virtual reality where you can turn gravity on and off <laughs> mm. uh, so things appear to be falling towards you or not um, and that was that was a, a, a lovely collaboration yeah I mean one of the ways we sort of consistently try to describe what we um, do at Future Visual to, to customers and clients was providing access to situations and scenarios that are physically impossible or prohibitively expensive to create mm -hmm. in real life. And that can be across kind of basic training or sort of experiments that are difficult to facilitate in the way that you've just described, i.e. turning gravity on or off. Yep. What do you think of the, uh, the, the current rise of the term metaverse, which is, is having its six months in the sun uh, <laughs> as a phrase? Hopefully it'll, hopefully it'll stick, stick around a bit longer. Um, but it's certainly having a, a, a bit of a, uh, a, a, I'm not even going to say resurgence, but a, a surgence in, uh, in sort of popular commentary and, and possibly culture. Well, uh, it's, uh, it's obviously, there's, there's many different things underneath it, I think, which I'm, all of which have had a long history. So, so I, when Facebook talk about metaverse, I, I'm actually not sure what they mean. Um, uh, but I know what other people mean <laughs> when they talk about mm -hmm. it. Uh, there are these old visions of sort of mirror worlds that sort of inform augmented reality and location-based media. Uh, the large social space, uh, online social VR space, is uh, and, and the standards around it is fascinating. But again, it's not it's not a it's not a new suggestion um, because I mean. Uh, I did my postdoctoral work on things that could be could now be called metaverses in that they were servers hosting content in 3D. You could have a browser that switched between them um, and you could build infinitely large spaces. That, that was certainly possible, but it's sort of it's been possible for a long time um, because you need you need the Internet. You need a, a renderer, uh, some VR hardware and you need a protocol. Um, so those have been built since uh, at least 1997 uh, when I started doing it, mm. and um, and then but there were precursors, right? So coming out of the the multi-user dungeon community, the online games community, there were sort of people proposing sort of open standards that would you could see that would get bolted onto graphics in the end, and of course that's how some of the more pop early and more popular sort of online games got built. They were underneath sort of very simple sort of text-based engines, uh, which uh, with with servers that could deal with large numbers of players. Um, so I think the, the current battle, the work, the, the reason it's become such a hot topic at the moment is because it's it's a battle for the future of the application. Um, what is an app in the future? Um, because uh, so that's why I think Facebook is interested in it. Is that um, they're not a platform holder, so. Um, so we've got locked into this this mode, uh, and of course the platform holds where you get an app. An app is a single thing; it holds the whole screen, um, and that's that's the unit of attention. Um, and we've moved away from sort of more complicated operating systems, uh, and it seems to be by purpose. So even Apple and Microsoft are moving their sort of desktop platforms to, more towards this app model. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately that they're the, they're the, you, you have a, you have a gatekeeper, which is the platform provider that serves code. Uh, and that won't work at scale um, because it's formidably hard for content creators to get onto it. 
um, and the, the beauty of the web when it was launched was that basically anybody could make content, make servers and compete um, early on. So there's a bridge, there's a sort of gap there, which is an opportunity for somebody to come up with a, with a system that can serve apps, which can be multi-layered, take on some of the responsibility that window managers used to have mm. for sort of modulating between apps, um, um, being able to compose apps together. This is one of my bugbears about VR at the moment. Um, is you know it's a VR app that's all self-contained. It is like a like a mobile app, and I can't I can't use it as a tool to um, serve other purposes. I can't mm. cut and paste, for example, in and out. I can't have one app here and you know attach another app uh, the background to make a workspace. Mm. Um, so all of those challenge all those challenges boil down to something which I call the, the sort of who runs the code problem, mm. like who has permission to send you code. Uh, and to execute it um, because the only secure way we have of doing that is is the app model with a gatekeeper um, and um, or you trust a closed town like Roblox or something like that which is where you assume that because of the tooling they have that you don't have malicious apps and that's that that's been a problem for a long time people have known that's going to be this sort of micro app problem is is an operating system problem that's been around for at least 20 years. Mm. Um, and it's the, it's the core part. I mean, if, because it's, it's explicitly excluded by terms and conditions of the app stores at the moment, because it's sort of a, it's a, it's a breach point in their, their walled garden um, to, to make these things more composable. Mm. Um, so I think that's the main challenge. I think that the, that Facebook is looking at is how to, uh, make it available for them uh, mm. and others to sort of serve you content in, a, in an easier way. Um, and then that bridges across to all these visions that people have had of how to build this sort of large scale multi-server backends where I can serve you content. Um, and I can say that obviously for VR, that's not just assets, it's assets and their behaviors, which needs the code problem. Mm. Um, hence, hence it's an unsolved challenge because there's a, there's no sort of browser for VR, and um, uh, I'd love to be challenged on this. But I, I think WebXR is very promising. But it's it, you know to make it to re to realise its potential, it's going to need a fundamental shift in what the browser can do and its security model, underlying security model, and so on. So, yeah, I, I think compared to the benefits of you know standalone devices uh, with with native apps, you know WebXR. Uh, from our experience in it, you know, just adds uh, and obviously limited number of devs. Um, you're always kind of going to be compromising that experience, or you're always going to be limiting limiting it to a sort of client view type experience. Obviously, it has more capability, um, but yeah, it seems that quite quite limited compared to you know what you can achieve on other devices. It may be a route, but there there are some real. And it, you know, you can. It's the easiest way of serving some types of content at the moment. But there's a real challenge looming five mm. years in mm. the future, which is around the security model of the web. Uh, um, and um, for example, single host servers. So, so if you want to build this cyberspace with people walking around between different, um, that's not. You know, it's without a change in the in the way browsers are written. That's not possible. That I. Have had discussions where that we'd not we're not be able to figure out a way of doing that mm -hmm. but, um, because of the single server security model that they 
they have with so obviously it's when get outs but um the get outs at the moment are all expressed at the front as far as i recall from the standards mm. and culturally why do you think it's do, um, do you have any reflections on on the the timing obviously we can point to things like rising gaming and i think you know yeah. covid obviously has been a massive impetus um for increased time in in digital spaces but do you have any sort of reflections on on, on why that culturally does this fit in with a, t a timeline well obviously you've been involved as you just described being involved in vr and immersive for a, for a long time how does this sort of fit in with your timelines of expectation uh, around the medium well timelines are always uh, subject to change. <laughs> subject to change. But I think you referred to gaming and uh, the the idea that um, there are some. Obviously, there's some massive, life fulfilling sort of big systems out there which sort of people use a lot. Um, but they're expensive and they're hard to marshal, and um, it's very difficult to break into. So there are um, there's a there's a certain sense that they're fantastic, but they could be better. Mm. Um, so there's a, there's a, and you, you can imagine that they'd be more pliable so people can set up their own content creators. They're not always amenable to other people creating content. So mm. um, <clears throat> um, there are lots of creators that would like to make these things, but it's not, it's not, uh, not so, not so easy. So I think part of the, the metaverse story is that if the tools get better and more open, uh, and for example, you can do the thing which you could do in HTML, which is clone things um, uh, uh, with and hopefully the, the permission systems behind that this time around, that, um, that you can make your own variants of something um, and you can attract your own audience. So uh, so I think there's a, there's a big appetite for that as people have got, have grown up more with these types of media as being served to us that they want to create their own. And that's, that's very fair, but they want to create it. Um, one of the thought processes we have is let's make it as simple as running a D and D session or a games evening down, down at the local pub. Mm. Um, that's, that's, you get your, you get, you, you get some things, you think about it, you take them along. Uh, there's not a lot of preparation. There is preparation, but it, it's all sort of, all about the game, not learning Unity mm. or learning some other systems in order to get to the tools. So I think it's hit that, and I, uh, um, that, that that has converged. And I think that you know, I, th I see it much more driven by the content creators wanting access to this this population that now has a thirst for interesting things mm. online, um, which aren't just you know aren't just run by Blizzard and and um, Rockstar and so on. <clears throat> um, so, so I think that, that I think that that's a good that's a, that's a good uh, um, um, forum. It's a, it's a good sort of collection of people to get want to get involved. Mm. Uh, there's also a big uh, industry. I think is also sort of ready for some of these materials. We've had we've worked on many use cases over the years, and we don't do a lot of applied VR, but obviously we, we've we've had lots of people come in and say, oh, "I'd like to visualize this," or "I'd like to." to do that and the barrier of the tools has always been the problem mm -hmm. so um making making those you know getting better at the computer graphics and getting better at the engine technology to make it more stable more common i think will, will facilitate that as well because um um yeah that, that's where the research is i think it's getting rid of i mean getting rid of some of these barriers so that people can
access the tools and make their own content. Mm -hmm. And what are you more excited by? Is it uh, enterprise or sort of consumer uh, uh, immersive spaces? <clears throat> well, I think for, for me, it, the enterprise has to serve consumers. So it's a sort of part of the same equation of, of facilitating people to build content. And it could be big, it could be big, big enterprises or your local, your family. So I think that's the challenge is, is there is a way for enterprises to build con content now, which is hire programmers or hire a design uh, a company to build them the content they want. And, uh, and the classic example of that is people who want to advertise. They can hire people to do, to build them the apps to advertise themselves. Um, perhaps, I, perhaps I should rephrase that question. Is it uh, more, more excited by um, the impact of, and when I say enterprise, um, let's keep it in, like in the realm of sort of training or learning. Yep. So, so the impact of people being able to train or learn in scenarios that are difficult to attain or, or dangerous to repeat in real life. Yep. Or versus um, people meeting up in a social context. So to, so to put those sort of those two um, pieces slightly further away from each other. One, you've got training, which is kind of safety and efficiency uh, orientated. Uh, and then the other one is is essentially meeting up in, in, in new social realms. Do, do either of those excite you more, or is it kind of consistent themes to both of those arenas in the way that you just described with content making? Yes. So, so I think um, I think that they're, they're both excellent applications. So, so in, in and of themselves. So, um, the, the difficult, dangerous, or expensive is sort of the the default for VR, sort mm -hmm. of. Um, they, so it's a it's a excellent use of virtual reality. Um, it's got lots of benefits, and um, it enables you know more efficient training, more efficient engineering, more efficient design. Um, but the problem is the tooling. So it's making those scenarios. And um, my own opinion about that is it's all it's all about so it's it's about the social. <laughs> so um, the 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 thing that you that I think sort of critically enables this is allowing people to, to, to come together in those scenarios, but also author them. Hmm. Um, because our experience with those, the, the, getting out, the training can be set up as, here's something you go through, that, that's basically PowerPoint on steroids. Here's something you do. Hmm. Um, but the, the benefit of training is most people have done it outside of you know a more didactic sort of scenario is let's talk about it let's go and review let's explore it uh where you need to facilitate the the, the social so um so for me what my, my focus at the moment um is very much on the the sort of starting with the the face-to-face -face, having chatting with each other and then building out what those people want so so the games is well served but the games authoring isn't well served at the moment so if i want to make new experiences how do i i, I build that in how do i um how do i allow people to to construct very simply and then and the, the training end it's okay i can make animations i can make scenes uh, i can do that already uh, but how do we make that um much more flexible. So, uh, for example, at the moment, two of our projects are uh, one of them, Daniela, is doing scene population by sketching roughly. So, 
if you want a, if you want a chair or a table in your scene, you sketch roughly what you want, and then it there are databases of these things. Mm. Um, but he fetches the one that looks like the one you sketched. Mm. So that's that's in at one extreme, but you can imagine that being used in any sort of context. It's for designed for people to build it themselves rather than. And you're drawing. And you're draw, to, you're drawing in world, are you, or do you have? You're like drawing a, in world. So for, with a sketch pad. Uh, so for the people that know a little bit about it, it's a bit like tilt brush. You sketch a little bit in a tilt brush like thing in three D, yeah. and then it says that, and then a, sort of an artificial intelligence system says that looks most like this chair in a database of fifty thousand chairs that I've got. Mm -hmm. because there are databases of these things online so rather than trying to type in it's got it's got queen Anne legs mm -hmm. um you don't know what those are but you can sketch them and say it's got mm -hmm. these sort of curvy legs with feet on and it will find the one you want and the opposite extreme is sort of doing it for crowds so if you want to program sort of human behaviors which again is a huge active topic if you want to pr program a sort of virtual human to do something then we're doing it by demonstration. So there are, you know, building AI systems that um, are driven by motion capture and planning that is sort of constructed for a particular purpose. But then when they come across a situation which they don't have, they've never encountered before, uh, they do something wrong, we can point it out and say, in this situation, um, you wouldn't do that, you'd do this instead. Hmm. Uh, and then it, hopefully, this is early stages, would then go and, um, the system would learn to sort of make a more intelligent character that sort of reacts to more unknown situations in a, in a more plausible way. It's not going to be intelligent, but it's going to be plausible mm. um, so that you can start to populate sort of scenarios that you might want. Mm, interesting. And what's been your favourite project that you've worked on to date? Ooh. Uh, <laughs> you could just say the one you're working on at the moment, but I'd love to... Um, yeah. A favourite project? Well, one of the things that <clears throat> I, it's not a project, but it's a sort of, it's a sort of theme is, is latency of the system. So uh, if, you go to, if you go and talk to my academic colleagues, yeah. uh, they'll, they'll sometimes tell you I'm the guy that sort of gets boring about latency yeah. on occasion. Mm. Um, because I, I think that's it's a it's a critical part of the environment. Um, mm. So obviously, in the academic world in the 1990s, when we started off, latency of the system uh, I think was probably around 100 to 150 milliseconds. And today, we consider that completely unacceptable. Mm. And it only came down relatively slowly, but um, but uh, we, we, we sort of kept pointing it out and then we built systems to measure latency. Then I had a, an excellent student called Sebastian who um, then built a system with very, very, very little latency. So it's end to end latency was less than a millisecond. The system latency, oh. less, than a, less than a millisecond. Hmm. And, and of course, now modern systems have a latency of um, roughly 18 milliseconds or slightly lower. And, and I think we're still, we thought that was good, but now we're starting to probe, what, you know, what is, these systems are going to get faster because there are effects that are actually sub 18 milliseconds. And that's really interesting. So they're not, they're good, they're, they're usable, but they're, they're not, it's not like perceiving the real world yet. I think we can go much, much lower. And of course, if you move to the networking world, <laughs> then, then all bets are off, right? I mean, you can, you have to deal with latency as you find it. Mm -hmm. um, and then um, and that's got us involved in all sorts of interesting things around how do you 
how do you synchronize uh, distributed systems which just have different knowledge because of latency and um and that's led to some uh, it was quite interesting directions with you know probabilistic concurrency algorithms and so on which mm. sort of are um we've only we've done a couple of years ago and maybe more disruptive than we, we think they, they were at the time it would just help us build a system at the time but actually they they think slightly differently about what what the network is trying to do and does um, and does any of your work around uh latency optimization or predictive algorithms is, is that contained in your uh, is it ubic i think which is there's a set of tools that you um made open source or just tell i'd love to know more yes, about what's so, in ubic ah right so yes so we released a, a toolkit last year called ubic we've not been publicizing it too much because it's it's actually improving quite quickly at the moment uh, so ubic distills is a toolkit for building social VR systems in Unity. Um, it's not a it's not a social VR system, but one of its the first demo is a social VR system, which is you know, somewhat vaguely reminiscent of Rec Room because we like Rec Room uh, to hang out with um, in, in lab meetings. So the idea is is to facilitate people prototyping their own things uh, and the secondary goals are to to enable sort of research on these systems um, because they're uh, everybody builds their own in academia at the moment there isn't a um, you can get a library for doing networking in unity but it's they're quite low level uh, so they they don't help much with the sort of high level things such as how do you keep avatars you know which avatars do you use how do you synchronize things and we spent most of our time debugging audio <laughs> systems, <laughs> trying to, to make it web compliant audio rather than using a commercial surface service. Um, so a tertiary goal, that's the secondary goals. The tertiary goals was uh, we wanted something where we had all the source code to make it, to make it completely open and to enable experiments um, which are compliant um, because we, we had done some assessment of oh, we can't go to the labs, how do we run experiments? Um, and some of our experiments are social. Can we use any of these big platforms? And the answer to which is no, because we need to run our own service for data protection. Mm -hmm. And therefore we ended up with... So um, this was, this was a, a COVID catalyzed project. Yes, so we built into it some of the tools that you mentioned from our previous work on networking. In particular, some of the logging systems um, that we have, so to, to to enable you to sort of debug what's going on. <clears throat> um, so there, so that's that's quite sophisticated, more sophisticated than the printing out to the the uh, console anyway, mm. um, in a distributed sense. And also some of the, the sort of learnings from um, how to abstract things from systems. So although it's based in Unity, it does run on a wide variety of VR devices, but also on the desktop. Um, so you can drive it. Uh, so if you don't have a headset uh, mm. available, you can still run it from inside Unity. It can be a full client rather than building a client. So these are some of the things that we've learned, not because of networking, just because of making our life easy in the lab over, mm -hmm. over many years. So it sort of started as, a, as an offering to the academic community, people who wanted to do social experiments. It's like, well, you're going to need this. Yes, yeah, that was I. That that was uh, yeah. That that was the main goal is is rather is to enable people to build 
their own so they can experiment. There's lots of things to test on these systems, such as um, there are hundreds of example systems out there of, of, of um, and they keep getting, you know, some of them evolve and there are many options to make. So, um, such as um, how to do some, uh, how to embed privacy, how to, what the avatar should do, um, what people want to do in the environment. And you need to, you know, if you want to build your own, um, it's, uh, it's a lot of getting started. So hopefully we're facilitating You've that. You've made that a bit easier. I mean, you mentioned Rec Room uh, and I've seen some of the other platforms you've referenced in, in one of your papers, um, which I think was Directions for 3D User Interface Research from Consumer VR Games. Ah, yes. <laughs> uh, and what, in your opinion, makes for a useful collaboration space? And I suppose right. there's, two, there's two streams to that, aren't they? There's sort of latency dev type thoughts and then actual uh, client-side interactions when you're in the space together. Yes, so... So a lot of systems do a good job of a focused meeting. So once you're all there, um, you can you can chat, you can marshal around resources, you can get your slides in, you can get your objects in, you can talk about it. Um, not so many of them are good at the sort of peripheral things. What do you do if you're five minutes early? Mm. What do you do if somebody's late? Um, how do you onboard people? So I think the the best platforms are thought through the sort of where does where does this live in somebody's professional social life? Um, how do they get people in and um, how do they, uh, what are they doing before? What are they doing afterwards? Uh, and the very best ones don't make me, make, make me wait when I'm ready. Um, so don't make me download a 500 gigabyte patch just because, uh, I, and Rec Room doesn't get that right, right? Most of our meetings, if we have an adult meeting, somebody's late because it's patching. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and that's 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 one of these constraints about the platform we can't get around right how do you ship updates to your app at the moment well you you go to oculus if it's on the quest or google or or apple and say please push this update that then gets streamed back down again uh, because we're, they're all iterating on the code at the moment right it's not the assets they're iterating on so they're not in the nice position of a more mature game engine where updates can be served directly um, because you want to change the code and that's the fundamental problem. I, I think my opinion is that that's always going to be the point, right? Because mm -hmm. it's behaviors we're interested in. It's not, it's not what things look like. Um, so the best platforms are making that easy uh, and um, there are, um, to, 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 to get started, to bring in things that you want to use and, um, and um, a lot of flexibility to allow people to do, to do the social situation in a slightly different way. So not just having one place, but having, you know, having a bit of, you know, having a lobby or a fort, you know, so you can step outside. My main advice to people is think about what people do in real rooms, right? So, you know, people leave real meetings, right? I mean, um, which is, on, which, uh, if you remember back when we used to do them, you know, occasionally you'd see somebody go outside to take a phone call, right? There was somebody, you know, everybody's looking at their phones, but sometimes some people would leave. And, you know, you're in a conference, um, that's an established rule, right? So you, you would usually establish a rule saying no phones, you know, no phones in the room. We realize you're adults and you might have to, you know, you might need to leave. So feel free. 
And that's the type of thing which isn't easy at the moment because not many systems are thought through. Well, if somebody does need to take a profile phone call and they therefore take off the headmounted display, they don't get kicked out um, because it can be difficult to onboard them. So I think that the flow in and out is really important. Um, and I think the next challenge is how do you make things that you can, you can use afterwards? Uh, so if, you, if you're going to do a, say, a, a review of a building information model, how do you, you know, getting the tooling in there to annotate it so you can export it yeah, is, yeah. is really interesting. Mm. And you see a few bridgeheads there of people doing that type of thing. So sort of making, you know, making the, the, the meeting an asset to be reused in the future. Mm -hmm. uh, and I guess an extension of that, what do you think uh, companies or devs get consistently wrong? in um, the, those kind of spaces. You sort of touched on some of them, but I wondered if there, yes, was, if there was always a bugbear that you always saw. Yeah, I mean, it's this, it's this, it's, it's updating, right? <laughs> so the platforms are unfortunately um, a little, little naive about launching. Uh, I, I think everybody's got that wrong, which is this sort of, if I've got a device, then there are a very limited number of things I want to do. If I turn it on, I don't want to see a store. Right. I mean, I, I want to, you know, I want to have a shortcut to launching things. So, so that's a direct criticism of Oculus and Steam and so on, is that if I put on the head mounted display and see my room, it should be quicker. Right. I, I, want, I want to get out of the way most of the time mm. and get into the app because I'm using the same app. Um, um, I think I think the systems get too over precious about the the, uh, the, the avatars um, and forcing style on them. I, you don't want chaos. Um, but I have no hair in all my avatar. In my favorite platforms, I have no hair because it's easy to recognize me. And I think that's the one thing that people want out of avatars and self-representations is, is to be able to recognize people without looking at a name tag. Uh, so forcing people into a particularly restricted set, I think is, is um, I think every, all the platforms are evolving away from that based on feedback. But I think that um, that's one of the things that, you know, it would be nice to solve in Ubic next would be a sort of a nice avatar system, which would be caricatures, but you know, sort of fairly flexible so that um, um, so that you can be recognizable in, in the system. Um, and then I think nobody solved the challenge. because I think it's an, it's a sort of a platform problem is how do I get data in and out mm. of these applications without pointing it at Office 365 or Google Docs at the back end, because that actually does involve, that, that is actually very hard for the developer to support at the moment. It's not cheap um, to do that. So the, the platform is so certainly, we can't do it in Ubic at the moment because all the platform, all the plugins that do that cost money and are commercial. So, so that's not something that's easy to do, but I, I am thinking of if I do something, if I write something on a whiteboard in the, in the, the system, I don't have the same as I have on an Android, which is how to share it to other apps. Mm. Um, so I, I'd be surprised if they weren't coming up with those mechanisms of what is a generic sharing mechanism in and out of these, these platforms. Because um, again, it's a sort of a threat to the platform holder, right? Uh, and, and apps have to think about where they would live in that. Are they the best visualizer of some sort of chart data or are they what do they do if they come across email? Um, somebody wants to share an email, what do they do? Uh, so I think t tooling around that is, is, is coming um, and um, I would be very happy to not have to do that in our own software. Yeah, I mean, uh, I think some of the, 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 the areas with the greatest momentum around uh, shared objects across platforms is, is probably 
course, seems to be driven by the NFT space at the moment with you know, quite a lot of effort and energy around taking different objects or different avatars uh, into, those, into those spaces. So maybe that would be the, one of the sort of first breakthroughs when, you, when we see sort of bigger uh, publishers start to potentially use some sort of blockchain backbone to their games and therefore objects and items can be moved amongst uh, amongst, amongst games and experiences. Uh, we touched on uh, your directions for 3D user interface research from consumer VR games, uh, and you covered a lot of, um, of some of your sort of learnings and recommendations um, from that. Is there anything else from that particular paper that were, was a surprise to you that, um, that came out during your research? Yeah, so, so that paper was was crowdsourced um, in the sense that we asked people that played VR games or developed VR games what they thought were good interaction techniques. And um, what was the most surprising? Well, the first thing that comes to mind is that there, there is so much creative design out there. Mm. Um, and the one thing that surprised me is, is partly because of my history um, was the tomato presence. Uh, so I thought that was quite surprising. Um, but, and then that, for those that aren't familiar, in the game Job Simulator, when you pick up an object, your hand disappears, um, and you just see the object move, which is um, which is nice and means that they don't have to animate the grasp of all the objects, and you can see the object clearly. So when you put it down, you don't have to get your hand out of the way because mm. you're holding it. But of course, is a is contrary to what we thought about the body. Um, because we've done a lot of work and others have done a lot of work about what the body should look like and this idea of body ownership. Um, so that one, that was the most, that, that we've got, uh, there'll be papers on that. Uh, we'll write one if we, if we can um, about what is it, uh, challenging some of the notions that came from neuroscience about yeah. what the body should be like. Uh, otherwise, I think the, the main, the main um, sort of observation is, that there is a tension between realistic user, sort of didactic and non-didactic um, interfaces, which is a term that originally came from audio, which is sounds sort of things in the scene. You try and make a, a game which is a consistent place where everything's embedded into the world versus having menus. Um, and, you know, a lot of us try to avoid ever using menus in, in, in VR games. Uh, in VR systems in the past, um, because we thought that was that was just you know bringing in Tag, yeah yeah that's old, I mean, I old 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 ideas. So I you know I did <laughs> it uh, um, because some of the early platforms were built around languages like Tickle TK, mm. and that's a widget set. Well, I had it in three D. You could just you could dynamically program it in the system whilst immersed. But um, but we wanted to get away from that. So there is this tension, and so I think that design space. Will lead will will get um, will lead to a lot more conventions, and I think you may see a sort of partitioning of content into things that are sort of gone for the ultimate sort of let's make it effective. Um, and we've got static menus at the moment, but of course there's lots of prior work on dynamic menus and pie menus, which you, somebody will do in VR, and you'll see some you'll see emergence of some very fast user interfaces. So this is one of the things again. On the list of things why to use VR is because people like me hypothesize 
but it can be a really very efficient user interface because it maximizes bandwidth. Mm. So I think you'll see people build apps and you'll, you'll look at people looking, doing those apps and you'll see that's incredible, like how fast they can do things in those systems um, um, because they've got the tools and it's been heavily customized. And you can just see what's happening with Beat Saber and games like that and say, well, you know, if we, if we build for those people, we can make them very good at their apps um, and, versus and, this sort and, of more traditional sort of we'll make it a world what we'll make worlds which are very understandable because we'll make them places you can go to and they'll be they'll be interactive you know and um it'll be very uh, natural natural interaction um and I, so i think they may diverge and you may get have people that look at somebody using one of these very fantastic fast apps and go what on earth <laughs> how on earth do i learn how to use it and so by bandwidth there, you mean the you know, human senses bandwidth yes, and, the ability, a, and, the, ability to, and yeah. the ability to be optimized. So that's very interesting. You know, the one yeah. school of thought is like, let's build a place, a sense of place yeah. where people go and do stuff. And then stepping back from that is like, no, let's just build, build a tool set and not worry about the environment, but it's just optimized yeah. for performance. Yeah, but that's what the real world is like, right? I mean, that, 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 they, that, that has things which are common because they, they're shared by thousands, millions of people mm. and they're designed for it transport systems for example had to be designed designed to be used by many people but a, you know a grand piano or a uh, or you know a work even a workshop is you know the grand piano is a convention people study for years and then you know the bandwidth of input is massive mm. but in a workshop it's the same thing but that's usually very heavily customized by the by the by the person and i think we're looking at you know both of those are a challenge right there to get you know interfaces which are sort of uh sort of as good as sort of physical interface which is a fast you know thinking sports and music as, as sort of being key examples but also tools which allow me to be to build up bring up or raise up my workshop around me to make me effective um at, at creating um um and yeah the analogy um is that is the workbench and uh, mm, or no. the office um, yeah. that i work in Interesting. Good to hear your uh, analogy there of the, of the tomato uh, effect. I think we're doing something similar in a job for HP at the moment, but it's the coffee can where they've got to hold up these print samples and we're like, uh, well, we'll just get rid of the hand. I think part of it is because if your um, pinch point or your connect point to the object isn't very well defined, then you have to think about the way you're holding it and therefore it's not as seamless and as instantaneous yeah. as it is in the real world. Or, hands are by a having, or by having your hand disappear, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Hands yeah. are a problem. And of course, if you would, the, the thing about those games at the moment or those systems at the moment is you pick up an object, you're, so, you're right, it's not very finesse. If I was picking up an object to show it to somebody, I would plan ahead and use a very specific gesture and I'd, you know, or pose of my hand. If I was showing a tin of beans to somebody, I'd pick it up on the top and the bottom mm -hmm. because I want them to be able to read around. Yeah. So, and, and, and so that, um, but in VR, in you just kind of, you just I don't have like that option. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'll pick it up, and the label yeah. will be uh, will be will be covered yeah. because I don't have the finesse. Mm -hmm. So yes, if you wanted a, you wanted a PhD player, you wanted a PhD in this area at the moment, then focusing on how people use their hands intelligently is a mine of of good metaphors, good systems, uh, hardware, even that allow somebody to use their fingers in a in a sophisticated way. Um, and you know the can of beans analogy is is a, is a great it's, it's one a I've used one. with a student in the past. Where you know think about what you know if you're somebody going to pick it up, but then they do something specific with it, they'll do it in a different way. 
Mm -hmm. um, and um, you want to facilitate that because the object is a communication device. Yeah. Um, if you, as long as you don't want to just eat it. Well, we're kind of coming to time, but I've got two questions I must ask you. Uh, yes. uh, one is about book recommendations. Um, so I'll, I'll start with that. Uh, what book recommendations could you give us, either within the field or just general books within life that you've particularly enjoyed? Oh, um, uh, so for people that do virtual reality, um, I get asked this a lot and I'm afraid I just have to point them at my bookshelf um, and say, well, I've read a wide range. So if you want to know about virtual reality, then Jason Gerald's book about the virtual reality book is a good starting point. But I, I do suggest people read because, um, you know, the, the old texts, right? So, um, so, I, um, uh, so read Howard Rheingold's old book. Uh, I'm struggling to remember the name of it um, about virtual reality. Or well, Roy Kalowski's book about the science and engineering of virtual reality. It came out in 1992. So it's a retrospective on VR from the early 90s. Okay, so, um, so that, that gives you an idea that this isn't new. And then on, <clears throat> on the, on the, the, the breadth is another question. I've, uh, so um, I've had interesting um, discussions about uh, um, books about how people understand space. So I'm looking at my shelf now where the things I've read recently, um, I, I forgot the name of the author, but I read a book about uh, disability recently called What Can a Body Do? I'm afraid I don't remember the author, but it was really interesting about how you make things accessible. And that's a grand challenge for the field is, mm. is um, um, one of my personal sell, you know, sales points, especially to research councils at the moment, how to make a very accessible system. Can we use VR to make the real world more accessible? Mm. Um, and how do we make, uh, after we've made VR accessible? Um, because of course that's a, that's a, that's a proximate challenge um, as it becomes more, more useful. And, and then if, if people want to um, get into the sort of, um, um, the sort of neuroscience, then I think um, um, uh, the book Surfing Uncertainty is a being for me um, of, uh, quite um, uh, by Andy Clark has been quite inspirational. And there's a there's a quite a few of sort of cognition and neuroscience books which are which are sort of more um, uh, accessible to the public, though that they are sometimes challenging. Um, and of course, uh, I, I read around <laughs> architecture and art uh, as well. So I, for most people that have seen some VR system, I, I recommend the book, the book uh, Virtual Art as well. Mm. Just to have a look at what artists have been doing in this field for the last 20, 30 years. Because it'd be inspirational about what the interface should be, what mm. what's the system know about the person. Mm. Um, and then the second question was around theories. I, I, I particularly like uh, Solomon's paradox, which is it's easier to give someone else advice about what they should do than to perhaps give yourself that advice. So I was wondering if there's any uh, uh, theories or perhaps even observations of life that uh, stick with you. Um, oh, uh, that's, a, that's a real challenge uh, after <laughs> speculating. I think that the, the one thing, um, so I, I train, a lot, I, so I supervise, I've had the pleasure of supervising a lot of students um, over the years. And the one thing I would like to convey to them is not to be afraid of experimenting with the systems um, and, and wandering into fields where they don't feel expert. Um, 
because um, in a, as a research career or a development career is, is to go away, build, test, and some people will be annoyed, uh, but they'll be annoyed and then they'll tell you why they're annoyed and then you'll do good development and research together. Um, so that would be my my main advice. Yeah, you 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 broaden the question quite a bit. I think that, I think that fit, I think that fits well though. Essentially, don't um, be afraid of uncertainty, which kind of yes, fits, fits and, with a lot of the the, the field. Yeah, and, and build. Here. You know, if, if if you know, build a system and and try it. Um, so you know, I've had the pleasure of working with you know theatre directors, uh, an opera director, and so on, and I felt way out of my depth. But you've got something interesting to talk about um, mm. because. Uh, I had long, lovely conversations with people about avatars mm. and, um, and this was with uh, somebody who trains opera singers, how they use their eyes. Mm. Um, and if you think through that, actually, we've got a common problem, which is limited information, uh, mm. hard to see what's going on, um, but somebody has to act. And that, you know, so, so don't be afraid of those because, you know, you might be quartering at cross purposes for a short time, but very quickly you'll come to, you know, hopefully you'll come to a common problem. Mm. Wonderful. And, uh, well, uh, it's been fantastic to talk to you, Professor Steve. Thank you very much for your time. And uh, yeah, really grateful for you to join us here on Building New Realities. Thank you. I'm just going to push pause now. <clears throat>